Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. She just made up a story that directly conflicts with her previous statements. Why be dishonest at a murder trial? Unless you're the murderer. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Something that is rarely seen and is typically not a great idea, is the defendant testifying at their own trial. Human nature tends to urge us into wanting to speak on our own behalf when we're being accused. Surely, if I can just explain to the jury what happened, they'll understand and they'll acquit. But the reality is that this is rarely the end result. Jurors tend to have preconceived notions about what an innocent person should look like and how they should act. You didn't cry enough or you cried too much. You looked them in the eyes or you stared at your feet. And you're also battling a preconceived notion of guilt. Even though the Constitution says that you're innocent until proven guilty, your average juror steps into the box assuming that the police probably got the right person. That's not to mention the dangers of cross-examination. A good attorney will twist your words, use your own statements against you, and make innocent actions appear to be criminal. That's their job, and most of them do it well. This is why most defense attorneys will not put their defendant on the stand. But in Deb Perringer's case, her attorney had no other choice. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deb found herself in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't scenario at her trial. In her initial statements to police, when asked about a small cut on her finger, she explained that she had cut it while doing dishes in the morning before taking her daughter to school and then reopened it that evening while moving some rocks in the yard. After her arrest, she was questioned by Detective Hardy, and he asked her why her blood would be found on the scene. And this is where she got herself into a bind. Rather than saying, I don't know, or better yet, I cut my finger at home that morning and it might have bled while I was there. Or even better than that, I'm not answering questions without a lawyer present. She said that the cut barely bled at all and that there's no reason for her blood to be on the scene. At that point, Hardy confronted her with the DNA evidence and she asked for an attorney. It was already too late. There are a few possible scenarios here. It could be that Deb is the killer, and that's why her blood was on the scene. Or it could be that her cut did bleed through, and she just didn't realize it. 
Or it could be that her cut bled through the bandage, and five months after the fact, when questioned about it, she forgot. Remember, at this point, she has no idea that her blood was found at the scene. And if she is actually innocent, the trauma of her parents' murders would obviously trump any thoughts about a minor cut on her finger that day. And then there's the last scenario. This one, in my opinion, is the least likely. It could be that there was an error or malfeasance in the testing, and Deb's blood wasn't actually on the scene at all. Regardless of which of these scenarios is true, it really doesn't matter. The prosecution went into the trial armed with forensic reports concluding that Deb's blood was on the scene, and Deb's own statement that there was no reason for it to be there. She was left in a position where the only way to rebut the state's claim that the only possible reason for her blood to be on the scene was because she was the killer was for her to take the stand herself. Attorneys aren't allowed to make statements. They can only ask questions. And there was no one to ask why the blood was there except Deb. When she took the stand, Deb was already in a tight spot. Innocent or guilty, I believe that she was either unaware or had forgotten about the fact that she had left blood on the scene. But that didn't really matter, because as far as anyone knows, her blood was in fact there. So now she has two options. Either double down on her statement that she has no idea why her blood is there, which would surely leave the jurors to conclude that it was there because she killed her parents, or give an alternate explanation. Unfortunately, the latter required her to lie under oath. Because as I said, innocent or guilty, I don't think she actually knows why her blood was on the scene. Now let's begin our breakdown of Deb's testimony. She was called to the stand by her attorney, David Bays, so he gets to question her first. He begins direct examination by having Deb confirm that it was her decision to testify and that she has a right not to do so. He then moves on to have her explain who she is and where she lives the daughter of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney, the wife of Paul Perringer, and the mother of nine-year-old Angela Perringer. Then, the obvious question. Did you kill your mother and father? Deb predictably replies, no, sir. Bayes follows up with, do you know who did? And again, no, sir. Next, Bayes asked Deb to describe her movements on the day her parents were killed. She said that she woke up and only her and Angela were at home. Paul had already left for work. She said that she got up and started getting Angela ready for school. Deb fixed her breakfast and she started washing some dishes. This is where she describes cutting her finger. From the transcript. While I was washing dishes, I cut my finger on a knife that was in the sink. Baze. Is that the same cut that's been shown here in these photographs? Yes, sir. How bad was the bleeding? Pretty good. I put a Band-Aid on it, and it went through one Band-Aid before we left, so I had to change it. Bays. Now you say a Band-Aid. Are you talking about these strips that you buy and you pull the backs off and put them on? Deb. Yes, sir. Bays. That was the total... Was that the bandaging that you left the house with that day? Deb. Yes, sir. Bays. Just one Band-Aid. Deb. Right. Deb then goes on to explain that she took Angela to school at the Harvest Christian Academy in, I'm sure I won't pronounce this right, Watauga. She says it's about a 30-minute drive. After she dropped Angela off, Deb says that she went to her parents' house. 
She says that she expected only her father to be there because her mother goes to the chiropractor about twice a week due to neck and shoulder pain and also because her mother believed it helped her with staying in good health in general. She goes on to say that she arrived at the house around 8.15 to 8.30. She parked her car on the street behind her father's car and then here's where things begin to go a little bit sideways. Deb says that when she arrived, she walked in the front door and her dad was, quote, playing on the computer. Based on the computer forensic report, the computer wasn't booted up and no programs were accessed until just before 10 a.m., which is obviously in direct conflict with Deb's testimony. But we've also learned that we don't exactly have the clearest picture of the computer activity in the forensic report. According to the report, the computer was last shut down two days before the murders on Halloween and not rebooted until nearly 10 a.m. on the day of. But we also have documents that were opened and created on the computer on November 1st listed in the report. It's obviously impossible for documents to be typed on a computer that's turned off, so I don't know how much we can really rely on the fact that the Courtney's PC wasn't on at 8.30 a.m. like Deb says. But whatever the case may be, the jury heard an expert say the computer wasn't booted until 10, and Deb testified that her dad was playing on the computer at 8.30. This is how Deb says her interactions went with her dad that day. From the transcript. Deb. He was looking through some papers of things that he had gotten off the computer. Did you have a conversation with him? Yes. What did y'all talk about? Oh, just how work was going, how being a housewife was going, and how Paul's work was, and how Angela was doing at school. Just usual family discussions. At this point, Deb describes what happened when her mom got home. From the transcript. Bays. Now, after you arrived and your father was there, did your mother come home? Yes, sir. All right, do you know what time she arrived? I think it was about 9.30 or so. All right, did she have anything with her when she came in the house? Yes, she had a sack of groceries. Do you know what she did with those groceries? She sat them down on the floor along with her purse. Now, you've seen, you've seen the photographs of the videos of the photographs here of the bags. Yes, sir. That were by the little table there in the kitchen area. Is that where she placed those bags? Yes, sir. What did she do with her purse? She sat it down by the bags. Not on the table? No, on the floor. Would she normally put her purse on the floor, or do you know? Well, just sometimes. It just depended on what she had in her hands. But you distinctly remember her purse was on the floor. Yes. Okay, did you have a conversation with your mother after she arrived? Deb. A long one. What was the subject of the conversation? Oh, about the same thing. How was I doing? How Angela was doing? How Paul was doing? Bays. Did you have any purpose for seeing your mother that day? Deb. Yes, I just wanted to. Well, was there any kind of documents or receipts that you needed to retrieve? Oh, yes, sir. I needed to pick up. She had given me tickets for, or she had gotten tickets for her concert that was supposed to be the next day. She was in Sweet Adeline's Barbershop Chorus for Women, and I picked up our tickets for the concert. And I picked up the receipt or the instruction sheet that she got for the trees that were supposed to be planted that day. She thought I might need it. Maze. Now, you hadn't had the work done yet. No, they were supposed to come any time that morning. All right, did you actually take custody of the receipt? No. You didn't get the receipt for the trees? Yes, I did get it, but I didn't take it to them. Well, I mean to say it came into your custody. Deb. Oh, yes. 
Baze then asked Deb about Mabel Zabo's testimony that she saw Deb carrying something to her car. Deb says that she was taking some pillows out to the car that her mother had bought her. And again, things go sideways here. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So Mabel's statement and testimony say that she saw Deb taking something out to the car at around 10.15 a.m. We know now that Agnes didn't get home until nearly 11. But this is how Deb says that she recalls things shaking out. From the transcript. Bays. Did you, after you put the pillows in the car, did you go back in the house for any reason? No, sir. You know which side of the car you put the pillows in, or was it the trunk? The passenger side of the car. Of the front seat or the back seat? Back seat. You put the pillows in the passenger side of the back seat. Do I understand you then walked around, got in your car, and drove off? Yes, sir. Do you know what time that was? Oh, I remember looking at the clock, and it said 10 a.m., and I told them that I was about ready to, that I needed to go ahead and leave because I had some other errands to run. So probably by the time I got out of the house, it was between 10.30 and 10.45, because it's kind of hard to get away from my mom. As I've said before, it doesn't bother me at all when someone gets times wrong. But my concern here is that the order of events seems to be impossible. Deb says that when she carried the pillows to the car, she left and never came back. But Mabel said she saw Deb walking to the car 30 minutes before Agnes came home. So this couldn't have been the trip to the car where Deb left. It's obvious from reading the testimony that Deb's story has been influenced by what she heard in the state's case. She's trying to craft a narrative that fits with what's been presented. What she fails to realize is that the theory presented by the state does not fit with the evidence. The timing is off, and now she's unknowingly feeding right into it. At this point, I'm only 20 pages into direct examination, and Deb is already digging herself a hole. She would have been much better off testifying to her original statements. In her handwritten itinerary, which was written within a couple weeks of the murders, she wrote that she got to the house, her mom wasn't home, So she left to go to the store and then returned shortly before Agnes arrived and then she left again. But instead, the prosecutor, Alana Minton, I'm sure was already chomping at the bit for cross-examination. As we continue, things go from bad to worse. Baze asked Deb if she had to tend to her cut while she was at her parents' house that morning. Remember, in all of her previous statements and in her itinerary, Deb says that she cut her hand at home and doesn't think that she bled at her parents' house. 
But now, in the position of needing to explain why her blood was there, she changes her story. From the transcript. Bayes. While you were at their house, did you have to attend to yourself about your cut in any way? Deb. Well, while I was there, before my mother came home, she had a couple of dishes in the sink, and instead of putting them in the dishwasher, I just went ahead and washed them. And my band-aid got wet, so I took it off and threw it away because my cut had stopped bleeding at that time. Then I got the dust rag out and started dusting some of the furniture, and it started bleeding again. And I looked, but I didn't see any band-aids, so I just kind of dabbed it with a Kleenex. Bays. You thought it might stop the bleeding? Deb. Huh? Bays. You thought it might stop the bleeding again? Deb. Yes. Did you re-bandage it before you left the house? No. So when you left the house, you just had that Kleenex on? Deb. Yes. Other than the direct physical or eyewitness evidence, nothing hurts a defendant more than being caught in a lie. In most cases, if a prosecutor can convince the jury that a defendant is being dishonest and changing their story, they will almost always get convicted. As I'm reading this testimony, I'm wondering how much coaching Bayes did with Deb beforehand. None of this should have ever happened. Deb's attorney should have made it crystal clear that she cannot stray from her original statements. Or at least it seems that way. But a little foreshadowing, as we're going to get into the cross-examination, we get a little bit of a clue as to why Deb testified this way. But as it stands now, Deb has made the prosecution's job very easy. She just made up a story that directly conflicts with her previous statements. That alone is enough to convince a jury that she's dishonest. And why be dishonest in a murder trial unless you're the murderer? Bayes next walks Deb through the locations on the scene where her blood was found. And predictably, she has an explanation for just about all of them. From the transcript. Bayes. Do you know how the blood that you got, that you, your blood appeared on the drawer by the sink? Deb. Putting away dishes. Okay, do you know how your blood might have appeared on the kitchen table? I was sitting there talking to my dad. We moved from the bedroom to the kitchen area and sat and talked. Do you know how your blood would have appeared on the lid of the trash can? When I threw my band-aid away. Are you saying that you put the band-aid in the wastebasket? Yes, sir. Did that wastebasket have a plastic bag in it? Yes, sir. Does your mother always use plastic bags for the trash receptacles? Yes, sir. Are you saying to this jury that if they had examined the contents that were strewn on the floor there, that they would have found your band-aid? Yes, sir. All right, back in your mother's bedroom. I believe there are three places where your blood was found. First place was on the mirror of the door. Do you know how that happened? Probably just from holding on to the door or opening the door. And how about the door frame on the other side of the door? Just from standing there talking to my dad. How about the caller ID box? I don't know. I went over to the computer, but you know, I'm not sure if I touched the caller ID or not. Was the computer still on the table? Everything in order when you left the home? Yes, sir. Nothing about that computer out of place as far as you knew when you left. Everything was fine on the computer. Deb's explanations actually make plenty of sense. If she had taken her bandage off and then moved around the house, as she says, then she would certainly expect to find her blood in all those locations. The problem is that during Cross, because of her previous statements, the state can easily paint her as a liar, which would render her explanation null and void. Next, Bayes asked Deb where she went after she left the house. 
She says that she first went to a 7-Eleven on McCart Street to get a big gulp, and that matches up with what she told Hardy on the day of her arrest. Allison and I went to the 7-Eleven while we were in Fort Worth and verified that there are several security cameras, and the cameras have been in use for over 20 years. But unfortunately, even if Hardy wanted to verify this element of the story, he wouldn't have been able to. Hardy never asked Deb where she went after she left the house until the day of her arrest. And that's the first time she told him about the 7-Eleven trip, which was five months after the murders. It's highly unlikely that the footage would have still been available at that point. But as for her next stop, that's a different story. Deb says that her next stop was at CeCe's Pizza, which is what she wrote in her handwritten itinerary within a couple weeks of the murders. Allison and I also made a trip to CeCe's. We learned a few things during that visit. We spoke with the manager, who was actually born around the time of the murders, and he told us that his dad has owned that particular store for 10 years. I'm working now on trying to put together a breadcrumb trail with the owner that will hopefully lead us back to the people who were working at CeCe's in 2001. But in the meantime, we did learn that it has always been CeCe's policy to have surveillance cameras at every location. That's never changed. So, if Hardy had bothered to go to the CC's, there very likely would have been footage that either confirmed or denied Deb's story. Fortunately, he never made the trip, at least not according to his report. She goes on to say that after CC, she went to Walmart and then made it home around 1 p.m., and then she took a nap. She then left to pick Angela up for school at around 2.35. She says that this was later than she normally left, and she ended up being late to pick her daughter up. At this point in the testimony, no explanation is given as to why she was late. We know from her earlier statements that she said it was because she overslept and then she fell down the stairs. Deb says that after the pickup, when they got home, Angela went out to play with some neighborhood children, and Deb went out to the front yard to move some rocks around to the bases of the newly installed trees. She says that she dropped one of the rocks on her finger, which caused her wound to open up and start bleeding again. She tried to put a band-aid on it, but it quickly bled through, so she went down to the house where Angela was playing and asked for some gauze and tape. She then rebandaged the wound. As the testimony continues, Baze asked Deb when she realized that the police thought that she had killed her parents. She says that when they came and searched her car, she thought that was unusual. And then Bayes moves on to discuss the Texas probate book that was found in her car. Deb testifies that it was her mother who gave her the book because she had been nagging her and Paul to make a will for a long time. Bayes then points out that the state is accusing her of killing her parents in order to collect on her inheritance early, which Deb obviously denies. Then he goes on to ask about the financial help that her parents had provided to her over the years. Deb talks about several times that Agnes and Lloyd had given her money and testified that they have never denied her money when she needed it. She then relates a story about a time when she and Paul were in dire straits and overwhelmed with medical bills. She says Agnes would stop by the house, see the bills on the counter, and just take them and tell them not to worry about them. And with that, Bayes passes the witness for cross-examination. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Cross-examination begins with an interesting exchange. Prior to the trial, it seemed as though the state filed a motion in limine forbidding any of Deb's statements to police to be entered into evidence or discussed at all in the trial. The judge granted the motion, which goes a long way to explain why Bayes wasn't overly concerned about Deb's testimony not jiving with her statements. But before Cross begins, District Attorneys Welchel and Minton asked to approach the bench. Welchel then proceeds to let the judge know that they plan to use her previous statements to impeach Deb during Cross. Bayes explains that his trial strategy was built around the state not letting those statements in, but then he agrees to let them in. Kind of. It's a bit confusing how it plays out. Here's the end of the exchange from the transcripts. District Attorney Minton is speaking for the state at this point. Minton. Judge, that's why we were approaching. It is part of the motion in limine, but it was the state's motion in limine. And now that the defendant has testified, we believe these statements are admissible but I wouldn't have gone into them because of the motion in limine without first approaching. Bays. Well, if we're going to go down this road, I think when I get her back on redirect, the motion should be lifted, the limine should be lifted, and I should have a wide latitude to talk to her about the whole thing she did say. Minton. I agree, Judge. The motion in limine didn't cover testimony by the defendant, only statements that she made to other officers, the testimony of those officers. Judge. I'm glad y'all had this talk to each other. Let's proceed. And that's the end of the conversation, and cross-examination begins. Minton's first question is whether Deb is right or left-handed. She's right-handed. Minton doesn't go any further down that path, probably because the cut on Deb's finger is on her left hand. Next, she has Deb confirm that her mother kept a very neat and tidy house, and then we move right into finances. Deb is asked to confirm that a stack of checks that were entered into evidence were in fact a combination of loans and money the Courtney's paid out for the Perringer's bills. And then, Minton goes right for the throat, throwing out questions about things that are not at all substantiated in the evidence. From the transcript, Minton. How long before your parents died did your mother tell you that they were getting ready to cut you out of the will? Deb. She never told me that. Minton. Your mother expressed displeasure with the fact that you were completely dependent upon them. Deb. No, ma'am. Your mother never told you that she and your father were tired and ready to retire? No, ma'am. Are you aware that your mother would write letters to God when she was trying to get her emotional feelings out? Yes, ma'am. And have you ever seen those letters to God? No, ma'am. This in my opinion, is a dirty, dirty trick. Now, all of you have heard every word of Agnes's letters to God. Nowhere in those letters does Agnes give any indication whatsoever that Deb is going to be cut from the will. Furthermore, there's no indication that Lloyd wanted to retire. 
In fact, the exact opposite is true. Agnes very clearly said that Lloyd wanted to keep working. I say this is a dirty trick because there's no way to dispute the implications. By asking the questions, Minton is putting in the minds of the jurors that Deb was going to be cut from the will and that Lloyd wanted to retire. And then she adds to that by implying that this information was obtained from the Dear Lord letters. Think about what you would think if you were on the jury. I would be thinking, why would the prosecutor say, quote, how long before your parents died did your mother tell you that you were getting ready to be cut out of the will if they didn't know that to be true? And frankly, I think Bayes really dropped the ball here. In all of the transcripts that I've read so far, I've yet to see a single objection from the defense side. Now, I'm no lawyer, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but that, in my opinion, was very clearly an improper question if I've ever seen one. Mitten stated a fact with inner question that was not in evidence. The question was when did it happen? But within that question, she states as a fact that her mother told her that she was going to be cut from the will. Bayes should have objected. Mitten continues on with this same methodology. She asked Deb if she recalls calling Brenda two weeks after the murders and asking when she planned to start executing the will. Deb emphatically says she did no such thing. Now, this is an instance where in the police report, there is a note that Brenda made that claim to Hardy, but Brenda didn't testify. So that fact was not in evidence. Minton then moves on to impeach Deb's direct examination testimony with her statements to police. Quote, You testified that you got to your parents at 8.15, but do you recall telling Detective Betcher that you got there at 10? Deb replies that she doesn't remember saying that, which very well may be true. And then Minton starts asking more questions about the night the detectives came to her house to notify her of her parents' death. She's trying to get a photo into evidence showing how dirty the house was, but Deb just keeps saying she doesn't remember any details from that visit or the visit the next day from the detectives and doesn't know what pictures they took. Minton asks the same question over and over and over again, and we finally get an objection from Bayes. He objects that the question has been asked and answered, whether or not Deb remembers the photos being taken, and the judge sustains. Minton next goes into the bruising on Deb's arm. She asks if Deb recalls the detectives asking about the bruises on her arms, and Deb says that she recalls them asking about a bruise, but says that it was actually on the top of her hand. And here, she also explains that she got the bruises because she fell down the stairs on her way out the door to get Angela from school. Minton continues on, asking Deb if she recalls having bruises on her arms at her parents' funeral, and Deb says that she does not. Minton moves on to talk about the skillets. She asks where Agnes kept them, and Deb says they were kept underneath the cabinet where the stovetop was. And then we shift right into the timeline. Minton points out that Barbara Parks testified that Agnes left the market between 10 and 10.30, and she then asks Deb if she thinks that maybe she has her times wrong when she testified that her mom got home at 9.30. Deb responds, quote, No, I believe her time is wrong. And then Minton enters Deb's handwritten itinerary into evidence. Deb explains that she wrote the itinerary a few days to a week after the murders. Minton points out number four on the itinerary, where Deb wrote that she arrived at her parents' house around 10 a.m. and her mom got there right after. Deb then acknowledges that she now remembers writing down those times, and Minton quickly jumps to the day of her arrest. She asks Deb a series of questions about her interview. 
Do you remember telling Hardy that you arrived around 8.15? Telling him that your mom had grocery bags? That you cut your finger doing dishes? Deb doesn't remember some, and she confirms some others. And then Mitten ends this line of questioning with this, from the transcript. Do you recall telling him that you cut your finger doing dishes that morning and that it barely bled? Deb. I don't remember that. Minton. Do you recall telling Detective Hardy on April 19th of 2002 that there was no reason for your blood to have been in their house? Deb. I don't remember saying that. Cross-examination ends with discussion about the probate book. Minton claims that on November 3rd, detectives looked in Deb's car, and at that time, there was no probate book inside. But when they returned with a search warrant two weeks later, the book was found. This is the actual exchange from the transcript. Minton. Isn't it true, Mrs. Perringer, that on November the 3rd, 2001, when your car was searched with your consent, that the probate book was not in your trunk? I don't know. But on the date that they executed the search warrant, some two weeks later, the probate book was then in your trunk. I guess so. Is it your testimony that your mother had bought this book and had used it? I believe so. And not, in fact, that the book was new and newly purchased when it was in your trunk. No. Minton then passes the witness. Redirect is short. Bayes leads Deb to explain that it was her lawyer, Jeff Kearney, who advised her to write down her itinerary. He then asks her about the part in the itinerary where it says that she went to the house, left to go to Target, and then went back around 10. Deb says that she really doesn't remember, but she acknowledges that her memory was much better when she wrote the itinerary than it was at the time of trial a year later. As I'm reading through this testimony, it's occurring to me the dead may actually have some real difficulties recalling the events of the day her parents were killed, which is understandable since she was dealing with a severe trauma at the time and was also severely medicated. It just doesn't make sense to me that she would intentionally testify to times that not only contradict her prior statements, but actually create a bigger problem for herself. Redirect ends with Bayes asking Deb about the clothes she was wearing on the day of the murders. Deb says that she was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and says that she never changed clothes throughout the day. Bayes then passes the witness and Mitten chooses not to ask any questions on recross. Deb is excused from the witness stand. Deb's testimony didn't end as badly as I thought it would when I began reading her direct examination. For those of us who have been studying the case, we can see the problems with her testimony but Minton didn't pounce on as many of them as I thought she would have. I suppose it was a combination of choosing her battles and the fact that the state never really came up with a plausible theory of the case. To be honest, I actually think the most devastating part of Deb's testimony was likely the discussion about the will. Minton all but told the jury that Agnes had told Deb that she was going to be cut out of her will. And again, to be clear, was absolutely not true, at least as far as anyone knows. And then she scored her final blow when she pointed out that the probate book didn't appear in Deb's trunk until weeks after the murders. And then adding to that the call to Brenda asking her to execute the will. All of this driving home her point about the inheritance being the motive and also painting Deb as a liar. Whatever your impression of this testimony is, the fact remains the same. It wasn't enough to convince the jury to acquit. 
and may very well have been a huge contributing factor to Depp's conviction. Conviction that turned out to be a death sentence. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.